Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, parasites. They're seen as bloodsuckers, freeloaders, and the worst kind of groupies, writes parasitologist Scott Gardner in his new book, and we're conditioned to be repulsed by them. But though they can do great damage to the organisms they latch onto, parasites are also the unseen influencers of our ecosystems, essential to food webs, and in some cases, even beneficial to human health. We learn more about the understudied parasites all around us. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tapeworms, leeches, pinworms, they inspire revulsion, but chances are you've had one or more parasites living on or in you. The spaghetti-length worm known as Ascaris, for example, has made its way into the guts of more than a billion people. And among all known animals, there are more species that live as parasites than are free-living. This hour, we take a closer look at their biology, how they can hurt us, yes, but also help us, and why it's important to know more about parasites than we do. Joining us is Scott Gardner. His new book is called Parasites, The Inside Story. And he's professor of biological sciences and curator of parasites at H.W. Manter Laboratory of Parasitology at the University of Nebraska. Scott Gardner, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here and we're ready to roll. Yeah, a pleasure to have you. Also with us is Henry M. Wu, Associate Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases Specialist at Emory University School of Medicine, also director of the Emory Travel Well Center. Dr. Wu, glad to have you on too. Thanks for having me on. So, Scott Gardner, I'll start with you. It's true, as you write, parasites are viewed with revulsion. I think the idea of anything living in our bodies and feeding off of us is is pretty gross (laughs) to a lot of people. You explored this reputation as bloodsuckers, freeloaders, deadbeats, and so on. I'm curious what effect you think it has had on parasites and how we view parasites and treat parasites. Well, I... Uh, basically, the way uh, people think about them is, um, if you're in the old in the days before we had modern medicine, people would um, have parasites all the time, and they would be coming out their nose at at night or at the dinner table, or you'd have pinworms. Um, so people became uh, averse to parasitism and parasites from the very beginning. But we've had them during our whole evolutionary history. So. Uh, it's kind of an interesting um, conundrum because uh, everybody has them at some time, but uh, we generally don't know it. And so I don't know um, how people actually think about them. For me, I'm 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 not normal. I'm not a normal person when it comes to thinking about parasites. So I um, I yeah. love them. So it's something that I'm focused on. Yeah. Well, my understanding is that you think parasites are 
really understudied. And I'm just curious if you feel like there's a connection between that reputation, the, the aversion, and the fact that they're understudied. Uh, yes, in fact, uh, that probably is the reason that they are understudied. If you talk to people who study mammals, for instance, mammalogists, they will look at the various aspects of ecology and systematics and evolutionary history of their mammalian groups. But lots of times when they're doing their collecting, they don't bother to collect the parasites. And almost every host, almost every individual mammal that's ever looked at has at least one parasite in it or on it. And they just miss it. Many, many people miss that. So um, yeah. it's probably because they don't want to think about it. <laughs> But as you said, you appreciate them. I think you told my producer, Susie Britton, that the tapeworm is perhaps your favorite parasite. Why? What What do you find so amazing about a tapeworm? Well, there's literally 20,000 species of tapeworms that have been described so far, and there's probably another 20,000 that still will be described if we have... Um, the hosts around long enough on the earth to do that. The question is whether they'll go extinct beforehand. But we are now um, talking about the kinds of animals that almost all utilize an intermediate host. That means it's a parasite that requires another animal to get to its next host. So that's one of the things that I find just most interesting. Um, if a tapeworm lives in a, for instance, a marsupial in South America, there's it has to be transferred to its next marsupial host via a cockroach or a small leaf hopper, or we don't really know very much about the intermediate host. So what I'm really interested in is the deep history of parasites and how we can understand their relationships based on both looking at the host, the parasite itself and the intermediate host. And, it's just a really interesting group of, of uh, interesting can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Well, how does it move from well, its host from to an host intermediary to, to another host? Yeah. Well, um, for most of the kinds of parasites that we know, kinds of tapeworms we know, for all, I'll just think of one quick example that we know a good one. There's a tapeworm called Hymenolopus diminuta that occurs in rats just ratus ratus or ratus norvegicus, the, the common rats house, uh, black rats or Norway rat. And the tapeworms live inside them and the segments, they're called proglottids or the segments are full of eggs. They reproduce inside the animal, but they don't actually um, stay in the animal. Those eggs that are produced don't, don't actually begin uh, growing inside that animal. They actually pass out with the feces go out into a little fecal pellet with the, with the rat, that the rat produces. The rat then um, leaves its fecal pellet, but along comes a beetle. And we know the, the life cycle of this one, it's, it's a beetle. And the beetle then um, eats the fecal pellet because in that fecal pellet, there's a lot of nutritious items like pieces of segments of tapeworms, which are proteinaceous. And the beetle eats, the, eats uh, some of the fecal pellet and then the beetle becomes infected with a larval tapeworm. Then eventually that larval tapeworm is then eaten again by uh, the rat. So that's the life cycle of a rat um, mm. tapeworm. So it's just really very, very direct. It goes tapeworm, beetle, tapeworm, beetle. So 
Tapeworms, That's one easy one. Yeah, yeah. And I really appreciated in your book that you would have images of these life cycles drawings. Um, and they were oh, very, yeah. very helpful. Um, yeah. Dr. Wu, yeah. humans can have tapeworms in them. Can you just talk a little bit about how and their effect on us? Sure. Um, and, and Dr. Gardner gave a, a great example to, to move off from in that, um, you know, the, the human tapeworms that we uh, consider medically important are, have, have a similar uh, a cycle. I, for example, the, uh, what we often call the pork tapeworm, um, again, is uh, something uh, humans uh, may get infected by, by eating, uh, you know, undercooked pork. Um, uh, that that has cysts in it, and, and and as a result, develop a tapeworm in your gut, and in many ways, kind of like that uh, that rodent uh, Dr. Gardner was just describing. And the cycle is completed when we we poop out, uh, you know, those those uh, segments and, and eggs, and and the and the pigs uh, feed on that. Um, the interesting aspect for human disease, though, is that um, humans can also uh, uh, develop those cysts too. And when, when, when we eat things that are contaminated with those eggs and we develop uh, cysts in our, in our brain and in our muscles at times, and this is actually one of the most common causes of seizures worldwide, um, what we call neurocystosarcosis. So, um, you know, a very similar life cycle, but again, with different um, species, uh, but uh, resulting in a very uh, relevant human disease. Do tapeworms always harm humans, Henry Wu? Um, you know, I certainly, um, you know, probably the vast majority of those, you know, thousands of tapeworms Dr. Gardner has uh, alluded to probably aren't even able to infect humans, and at least not that we know of, um, you know, and uh, certainly, you know, the, each of these species are, are have very specific hosts, uh, intermediate and definitive hosts. So if you take another example, the 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 beef tapeworm, which is again very similar to the pork one, um, um, those uh, you know if humans ingest the the eggs of that, um, those are not capable of developing into cysts in humans uh, the way uh, they do in cows. So each species you know has a slight variation, and you know and again and, and their potential to to cross species, but. Um, you know, and, and, and I, can, I think the fact that I, you know, again, I'm familiar with probably a half dozen tapeworms that are medically important, uh, and I certainly couldn't name uh, hundreds and not thousands of them. So uh, I think the good news is for most of us, um, you know, I mean, very few species are, are likely to cause problems. And, and, um, and yeah, I'd, I'd be curious what uh, Dr. Gardner thinks. Yeah, Dr. Gardner, your book makes the point that actually a lot of parasitic relationships, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting them, aren't necessarily terribly harmful to the host that they inhabit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we often think of them as only doing harm. Yeah, that's a, a really good point because one of the things that we do mention in the book and also when I teach parasitology is that everything all these different organisms have these different parasites. And some parasites cause a lot of harm. They can, they can really cause um, pathology. Lots of uh, decrease in the amount of, of, um, of vitality of, a, of an organism that has a parasite. But most of the parasites that we 
know of that live in different animals really don't do all that much. And if you think about it, um, the definition of, of a parasite is one as a, an animal that lives in or on another animal that causes some type of harm for, to that other animal. The harm can be minute, can be just almost nothing, or it can be extreme, like what um, Henry was um, talking about is the, uh, the um, pork tapeworm cause, causes major pathology in people. So what I mean by minute harm is that one tapeworm living in your intestine generally is, live, is using um, only about one sixth of the energy um, that is produced by glucose molecules. And I'm not gonna go into that deeply, but basically they run on anaerobic um, energy. So they don't use aerobic, um, uh, aerobic means, uh, they don't use oxygen when they're when they're using um, when they're using their um, their physiological system to to live, so they're basically just using only two ATPs out of every thirty eight or every thirty six that are available. Well, you know that and kind so of they, makes sense because if you are living off your host, you certainly don't want your host to get so weak that it ultimately dies because that's your source. Uh, we are coming up on a break, but let me just remind listeners that we're talking with. Dr. Scott Gardner, Professor of Biological Sciences and Curator of Parasites at the University of Nebraska, and Dr. Henry Wu, a Distinguished Physician and Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. We're talking all about parasites, and we'll take your questions about them. You can call 866-733-6786 or post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This hour, we're talking about parasites, their ubiquity, the threats they pose, but also their potential benefits with Scott Gardner, professor of biological sciences and curator of parasites at H.W. Manter Laboratory of Parasitology at the University of Nebraska. His new book with co-authors Judy Diamond and Gabor Rocks is Parasites, The Inside Story. Dr. Henry Wu is with us. He directs the Emory Travel Well Center, which is a specialty clinic for travel medicine and tropical infections, associate professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. What do you want to know about the science of parasites? Have you ever had a parasitic infection? What happened? Do you have questions about how they're treated 
or prevented. You can email forum at kqed.org, post thoughts at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Call with your questions at 866-733-6786, One of the things that I've mentioned a few times is just the ubiquity of parasites. And I want to ask you about another category of parasites, Scott, the single-celled parasites that can cause disease in humans and animals. And I want to talk about one that I believe is still pretty prevalent in the U.S., toxoplasmosis. Um, You point out in your book that it's a major cause of sea otter die-off here in California. Tell us about toxoplasma or toxoplasmosis. Yes, uh, toxoplasma is a uh, single-celled protestant or protozoan parasite that um, lives, it usually utilizes cats as its definitive host in order for uh, this life cycle to uh, go. Um, cats have to be involved in it at least some at some point. So the sexual reproduction part of, of uh, this um, coccidian parasite is in cats. So what happens is the, uh, the uh, cat eats a mouse that has the cysts in the tissues of the mouse or a bird. It's in the tissues and then the cat becomes infected and then it produces, after a few cycles, it produces in its intestines, it produces these oocysts and these little oocysts, kind of like miniature eggs that are about uh, 150 microns, less than that, maybe 75 microns long micrometers, very small. Um, they are produced and they're resistant. And they come out in the cat's feces. And then after about seven, five days, five to seven days, they, they sporulate in the uh, feces of the cat. And then they're infective to the next host. And the next host is, it's really broad. It can go into birds, any mammal. It's very, very broad. And the reason it's getting into um, well, it's just a really, it's a really pervasive parasite. Most people have antibodies to this parasite, meaning that they were probably infected at one time or another. And many times when you are infected, the cysts, the, the uh, parasite insists in our bodies and then it just stays there and our immune system suppresses the reproduction of the parasite. Um, the way, the w- reason it gets um, pretty tough is because if people have a cancer treatment where their immune system is um, suppressed because of immunosuppressive drugs, or if they perhaps get um, another viral infection like AIDS or something, then the parasite begins to grow very rapidly in the tissues of an immunosuppressed person or host. Mm. Um, The way it gets into the into the otter populations is that people were washing um, cat uh, litter boxes down uh, drains into the ocean and the oceans, then the water goes in the ocean. And then the, the oocysts are very resistant. They're picked up by things like abalone. The abalone then pull those into their tissues. The the cysts, the oocysts are sitting there. Sea otter eats the cyst and then the sea otter becomes infected. So that's basically that quick life cycle. Oh, I see. Well, Henry Wu, I was hearing Scott talk about compromised immune systems as being a real risk for bad effects from toxoplasmosis. I'm wondering if that's also why they tell 
pregnant people and women not to be around cat feces? Is it because their systems are a bit immune compromised when they're pregnant? Uh, certainly, uh, their, their immune status is, is, is not, you know, uh, the same as they are when they are not pregnant, but the, the most, uh, important reason is, is that an active, uh, acute infection of toxoplasmosis during pregnancy has a, a very, um, a decent chance at causing a congenital infection, um, and, and congenital mm -hmm. toxoplasmosis can be, uh, uh, very devastating. It can cause, um, uh, many congenital defects and, 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 and bad pregnancy outcomes. So it's actually a very important a bit of advice for pregnant women to, to avoid, um, you know, handling uh, cat litter or, or eating undercooked meats, uh, the, um, and, and mainly to, to protect um, um, the fetus. Well, this is no rights. Great topic, but stop the gross descriptions. The story of Toxie and cats and possible links to schizophrenia is interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. When you were talking about revulsion, it seems like the descriptions were something that this this listener did not necessarily want to hear very much of. But but Dr. Wu, is there a link to toxoplasmosis or toxoplasmosis and schizophrenia? It's a fascinating question. Um, you know, for some years now, there have been, you know, studies that are looking more at associations, um, you know, for between being positive uh, serologically, again, having evidence of, of, you know, exposure or infection of toxic at some point and, and schizophrenia. And, and, and there appears to be an, you know, an association again, but what's not entirely clear is, you know, is this a, you know, cause and effect or in which way is it going, you know, or, is infection more likely to to lead to some of these neuropsych conditions or somebody with those conditions more likely to be infected? I think those are challenging things to tease apart. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of studies to look at associations between being toxopositive and various behaviors. And you find all kinds of things in the literature. Again, it's very difficult to 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 sort of, un, you know, tease it out. But I think it's a fascinating question. I think on the animal side, it, it has been shown that rats who are infected with toxoplasmosis are potentially become attracted to the smell of cat urine when they typically should, you know, be, you know, driven away by it. And again, you know, evolutionarily, you would think rodents should be avoiding the smell of cat urine to avoid being eaten, but toxoplasmosis seems to have an effect on that behavior. So I don't think it's out of the question that it can have potentially some effects. We just, I think, have yet to really tease it apart, but I think it should be clear that you know, you know, any possible association, it, it certainly does not explain everything. You know, it's, it, you know, not certainly not all persons with schizophrenia have are positive for toxoplasmosis. Yeah. Well, we've got calls coming in. Let me go to Keith in Guerneville. Hi, Keith, you're on. Hey there. Uh, my question was about the use of parasites to treat things like Crohn's disease. And if the uh, speakers have anything to comment about that. Yeah. Parasites to treat Crohn's disease, Henry Wu? Yeah, it's another interesting question. I think it, you know, this comes up, this this idea comes out from the fact that uh, as, as as Dr. Gardner has talked about, we've we've co-evolved with uh with parasites and and you know the the fact that our you know most Americans you know when we checked our stool for parasites we don't find much evidence of any is is, is really an unusual situation you know compared to our, the way we lived ten thousand years ago or even how people are living in lower income parts of the world, 
And it's, it's always been interesting in that our immune systems that are, the side of our immune systems that fights parasites is also implicated in a lot of um, allergic disorders or autoimmune disorders, which, you know, raises the question that maybe, you know, some of these conditions are, are maybe the result of our, our bodies being relatively free of, of, of parasites in, in, in more modern era. And that has led folks to, you know, both formally and informally study, you know, the use of, uh, of, of certain parasites, particularly worms, to see if it can affect things like asthma and autoimmune disorders. Um, you know, I think, I think that the, the data out there is very thin. It's certainly not anything any clinician, um, you know, would recommend. Certainly, I don't recommend it. Uh, I, I think it does, though, point to some fascinating avenues of research on the pathophysiology of these conditions and why they're there and maybe better ways to treat them that don't involve infecting ourselves. Yeah, we're getting the inside story of parasites with Dr. Henry Wu of Emory University School of Medicine and Scott Gardner, whose new book is Parasites, the Inside Story. Scott Gardner is a parasitologist at the University of Nebraska. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation as well. Like this listener wants to know, so what are the benefits of parasites? So Scott Gardner, we were talking about how tapeworms can have less, do less harm than a lot of people may think, and that a lot of parasitic host relationships don't necessarily cause significant harm to the health of the host. But what about actual beneficial relationships, almost like mutually beneficial relationships? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting point. Um, I do make the point in my lectures when I teach parasitology here. Um, the University of Nebraska has a really long history of parasitology uh, at this place. It was started in 1890 here with Henry Baldwin Ward, and then it kept going from there. We teach the idea that parasites are everywhere. I'm not really um, sure that if humans are infected with parasites, that there is much of a benefit uh, for humans to have a parasite. The question was yeah. uh, Crohn's disease. Um, one of the questions of, uh, about that is that people who have been treated with um, a nematode called Trichuris, um, and the one that occurs in pigs, if people become infected with it, the infection is self-limiting. It only lasts for about a month or perhaps two, and then the parasites are lost. And uh, evidently, there has been shown to be some level of immune modulation that may cause some benefit to Crohn's disease. But those papers, as, as um, Dr. Wu said, are very um, few. Uh, the uh, studies aren't, um, aren't robust at this point. So I wouldn't necessarily say that's one that you should do, uh, that you should actually take yourself because um, it's, it's, it's not um, well studied. Parasites that live in rodents, on the other hand, like small pinworms, almost all rodents have their own species of pinworm, for instance. Um, the pinworms living in that rodent in the cecum, which is a, an outpocketing of the, of, the, of the large intestine, the nematodes living in there, basically, as I said before, are using anaerobic respiration, and they're then producing what's called lactate, lactic acid, and that lactate is then reabsorbed by the intestine, uh, the intestinal wall, and those, those uh, food items that are in the intestine at that point would not be resorbed by the, by the uh, rodent. So there could be some benefit uh, by some rodents to have pinworms because the pinworms are actually producing some energy 
that they can use. So that's really at the edge of really uh, helpfulness. <laughs> well, sure. I guess one of the things though that it makes me wonder is how we even define parasite. Like if it is providing some benefit, do you describe it as a parasite? It feels like there are a lot of things that fall into that category then of that term. Yeah, there's symbiotic relationships and commensalistic relationships. But basically, the way we do define parasitism is that the parasite lives in the host and then utilizes uh, some resources of the host, causing some level of harm. And it could be really very, very small, as I said, just a small amount of energy being taken. Um, and then um, the small amount of energy over millions of years can be a significant factor in evolution. So talk so, about, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, let's go ahead. Broader, yeah. the broader benefits, the broader ecological benefits, um, the role that they play in evolution, the things that may not be so specific to the individual that they inhabit so much, but as to, you know, the broader effect that they have on, on life. Well, the, uh, the work that uh, Kevin Lafferty and uh, Armin Kiras down at UC Santa Barbara have shown that in the, uh, the uh, salt marshes of California, the amount of parasites that the uh, actually number of parasites in the snails in those areas is so huge that it's causing um, those snails to, to want to reproduce faster before the parasites basically cause them to die or to be castrated so they don't, are they aren't able to reproduce. So parasites are everywhere, especially in some certain areas like salt marshes, almost every snail that you would pick up in those salt marshes has parasites. Those trematode parasites that are in those salt marsh snails then have to get into a bird as the definitive host. So these life cycles are just happening everywhere. All the animals have them, all the birds have them. It's very, very, Interesting. I'm not sure if you can say directly that we've measured positive effects of parasites, but parasites do limit host populations. Therefore, um, if, if you have limiting host populations by a parasite infection over large uh, geographic and ecological scales, then I guess you could say that there's probably some benefit there at mm. the ecological and evolutionary level. So this is what you mean when you say parasites, quote, act as mortar that stabilizes diverse communities of organisms and keeps them connected. That's just one of many examples, it sounds like. Right, that is one. And uh, Judy Diamond, our, our co-author, was so eloquent at, at uh, putting these, um, these words into something that normal people would understand. I mean, I'm pretty focused on, on um, heavy-duty systematics and evolutionary uh, parasitology that it's hard for me to put it into normal human terms. And she did a great <laughs> job of that. <laughs> how did you get him. into, how did you get into parasites? Yeah. Why did you get so fascinated by them? Dr. Oh, I was, I was extremely lucky. I, I, um, when I was a kid growing up in Western Oregon, we had a farm and my uncle who was a parasitologist named Robert Rausch would come to our farm and he would say, let's go out and look at what's, what's here, what kind of animals we have. So we would go out and we would collect animals and he would open them up and he would show me tapeworms and trematodes and nematodes and acanthocephalins and all the different things that we talk about in the book. All these things were there 
And so when I was 12, I was just stunned to look at these things because I didn't know that at all until he opened them up and showed me, looked at a frog and you can see these big trematodes in the lungs mm -hmm. and the frog looked fine, but it had like 25 or 30 huge trematodes in the lungs and the frog didn't seem to care at all. So I was really amazed. And then I went off and finished my, my uh, degrees at Oregon State and then uh, finished my PhD in New Mexico and then immediately um, had a postdoc and then a job at UC Davis. Then I came here. So I was just really lucky, just yeah. amazingly. It's just right in the right spot at the right time. Lots of California connections. Didn't you discover a tapeworm? Oh, we've, I've published about 170 papers now. Most of them are, are about new discoveries of, of tapeworms and nematodes. Yes. So when I was a kid, we opened up these pocket gophers that were there. Um, and the pocket gophers had tapeworms. Every single pocket gopher we opened when I was a kid there had them. Wow. And uh, it turned out it was a new species. So we <laughs> named it uh, Hymenolopus tualatinensis after I learned how to do the work. It, it took me a few years, but um, by 1980 or so, I was, I was able to do that kind of a description. And now we're working with, with uh, that group also. We're looking at the phylogeny of these same tapeworms, you know, looking at how the evolutionary relationships of these animals so Scott Gardner, yeah. yeah, professor of biological mm -hmm. sciences and curator of parasites at the University of Nebraska at the H.W. Mentor Laboratory of Parasitology. Also, Henry Wu is with us, distinguished physician and associate professor of medicine in infectious diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. They are here to talk about parasites with you and to take your questions about them, which you can email to forum at kqed.org. Post on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at KQED Forum, or you can call us 866-733-6786. We'll get to more of your calls and comments right after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about parasites, their ubiquity, the threats they pose to humans, and their ecological significance. With Scott Gardner, his new book is Parasites, The Inside Story. His new book was co-authored with Judy Diamond and Gabor Rocks. Henry Wu is director of the Emory Travel Well Center, a specialty, specialty clinic for travel medicine and tropical infections, also associate professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and comments about parasites. Let me go to Zena in Oakland next. Zena, you're on. 
Oh, good morning. Yes, I just wanted to say that um, my son, with about six months ago, was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, and he was not anxious to do the standard of care of taking medications. So he researched, and and it was found disgusting to me at the time. Uh, he got parasites, and he has these patches that he puts on his knee, and these parasites live in his gut for about three months, and he has to re keep reintroducing him. But since he started doing that, he does not have any more blood in his stool. He's able to eat pizza, um, you know, and he's, I'm thrilled about it, hmm. even though it, it made me feel kind of squeamish uh, when he first said that he was going to do this, but it's working for him. And so um, I'm kind of disappointed that your guests don't recommend that, but I'm just saying it's worked for my son, who's 37 years old, and um, he he notices when they when they when when the parasites in his gut are dying because he starts showing blood in his urine again, and he says the parasites provide some sort of a mucus that lines the colon that helps him with with his with this disease. Mm. Well, so that's that. all I wanted. That's yeah, I, I just wanted to comment that because I, I'm very encouraged, and I, I would wish that the professors maybe pursued it more. This, this like sounds like, like a new, uh, breaking, uh, venue for because ulcerative colitis is a horrible disease, and uh, many people have to go and have colostomies, and it's it's a dreadful change of lifestyle, and if well, a little thing like a parasite could help, that would be a fantastic discovery. Well, Zena, thank you for the comment. Henry, have you heard about this or about fields of study that are looking at this? Certainly, uh, I've heard of it. And as uh, Dr. Gardner says, there's been limited studies uh, so far. Um, I would just, uh, you know, and certainly I'm not an, a, a gastroenterologist, so I don't treat actual ulcerative colitis myself, so I can't comment on on you know the various alternatives, but uh, but certainly these sort of therapies uh, you know should be considered a bit you know on on you know outside what is conventional right now. But I would totally agree that you know stories like this I find intriguing and uh, certainly agree that uh, this should be understood further. And and again, hopefully, if we can understand uh, if and how this is benefiting patients, uh, you know, again, maybe certain. Tr- treatments could be developed that actually yeah. uh, don't require infection. I'm curious, Dr. Wu, what you see as the most urgent parasitic infection that needs attention in our globe, across the globe. Oh, wow. Because um, we focus that's... a lot on the U.S., for example, where there are, sure. a, a, there are, of course, a lot of parasites, but it sounds like, for the most part, the issues are more acute in other parts of the world. That's certainly the case. Uh, there's a whole group of, uh, of infections out there we call neglected tropical diseases. Um, again, these primarily affect tropical or lower income countries. They're neglected in the sense that, uh, you know, you know, much of the uh, modern and, you know, resources of research uh, for into treatments and prevention um, in, in more wealthy com- countries are not directed toward these. And 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 so whether it's the helminths or protozoal infections and things like malaria, these are major uh, um, problems around the world. Um, 
and and not just an issue for folks living there. Uh, certainly, we 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 counsel travelers going to parts of the world, and if you've traveled to places that are endemic for malaria, there are uh, many mm. precautions to take. Um, but uh, but it's really the burden is on the the local populations where something like malaria can still cause so many deaths, and particularly in children. Um, and particularly in places like sub-Saharan Africa, tropical certain parts of Asia, and, and also South America. Well, Alan writes, my father told me that as a youngster growing up in the rural village outside of Hong Kong, he had a worm in his intestines and was sick from worms and malaria. An herbalist was found who treated him, and eventually he passed the worm in his poop. Happily, he regained his health and some weight, lived on into his 70s in California. Another listener writes, I remember getting a notice from my kid's school when he was in kindergarten that pinworms were going around. I admit I was pretty grossed out. I'd never heard of a pinworm. Anything parents should be aware of in treatment or prevention? How long do they live in the body? Hmm. Dr. Wu? Yeah, um, pinworms uh, would be among the, uh, are, are sort of a uh, Nematode infections of humans, one of the more common ones in the U.S., and it, it is, can be passed, particularly among kids who are who are you know, who are shedding the eggs and 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 you know yeah you know kids aren't always washing their hands and reaching into their diapers it's it's very easy to be passed around um, it's quite fortunate that it's generally not uh, does not cause any severe uh, disease you know perianal itching and you know and, and discomfort are usually the most common signs I think it's important if if if, you, if your child or occasionally even adults can get it uh, do have these symptoms they talk to their doctor these are fairly easy uh, things to to diagnose and treat and and certainly other things can cause these symptoms so it's good to 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 check your doctor about those things Gina Gina writes listening to this I'm curious if there are any particular foods that the doctor avoids eating do they eat raw oysters do you avoid anything out of concern for parasites Dr. Wu um you know I I I that's a very good question I I I think it's you know the 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 food safety advice that we get from our CDC and and you know and and our you know, our food safety codes about you know cooking pork and and uh you know or, or raw fish you know if you're going to eat sushi it's best that's been frozen uh to kill parasites i think these are all very important uh uh, I think we're protected in a large degree in the U.S. with our regulations and meat inspections. Uh, overseas, where these things are not as strict, it's certainly much riskier to to, to partake in, you know, eating undercooked foods and things. But, uh, but uh, you know, at, you know, part of being a someone like myself who likes travel, yeah, I've 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 eaten many things and, and maybe not always the wisest things to eat. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I do encourage folks to follow general uh, food safety guidance and. And making sure there are, you know, um, certain meats shouldn't be eaten rare, and you know, other and should be well cooked. Yeah, Dr. Gardner, have you had a parasitic infection that you're aware of? Oh yes. Um, which one would you like? <laughs> it's okay. I'm just curious. <laughs> More um, than anything else, honestly. Yeah, I don't know if I mentioned. I think I mentioned it in the book. We have a well, the 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 nematode that I um, like a lot is Ascaris lumbricoides and Henry oh, mentioned right. that. Um, and that's the one that um, when I came back from Bolivia, I think it was 1986, I had, well, no, it was 85. Um, I always check myself whenever I go to a another country, like living in the field, we were there for four months, came back and I said, hmm, I'm gonna check myself. So I did a quick check with a slide, just a, a little, um, fecal sample on the slide with the cover slip. And I was, I noticed lots of eggs and I thought, okay, Ooh. that's, that's me. 
<laughs> so I said, all right, I'll take it to the doc. So I went to the doctor on campus. I was a graduate student at the time. And he said, oh, we don't have, I said, this is a scarus. I have a scarus. He said, oh, we don't have that here in the US. I said, well, I happened to bring a slide with me. Would you like to see it? So he found his microscope and he looked at it. He said, well, there you go. So um, yeah, I had that one. The neat thing about that nematode is that it has a very interesting life cycle very, very quickly. The, you swallow an egg accidentally because you were, were in fact, you basically got someone's feces on your food and, uh, or in the water. And the egg goes in, hatches your intestine, the larva breaks out or the juvenile breaks out, goes into your um, hepatic portal system, ends up through your heart, into your lungs, breaks out of your lungs, goes through another couple of molts, climbs up your trachea, then you swallow it, then it turns into, into an adult in your small intestine ah. where, they, where they hang out and mate and then they start producing eggs. So, uh, and, and Ascaris infects at least a billion people right now, probably more like 2 billion people right now on the planet. Um, and uh, so it's very, very common. One of the, probably the most common nematode infection in the world. Um, as uh, Dr. Wu said, the uh, pinworms in North America, probably 250 million people have, well, maybe 100 million people have those at any one time in the Northern Hemisphere. But in the South, Southern Hemisphere, more, a lot more people have uh, Ascaris. So mm. that was one that I had, had no effect. I had no idea I had it. Um, the doctor gave me a little pill, took one pill, found it the next day in the, in the commode. And uh, I, of course, I pulled it out and showed everybody, but oh there my you go. God. <laughs> <laughs> well, my understanding is that parasites are facing stressors with climate change. I'm reminded by this with a listener question. What's the effect of global warming and human migration on the spread of parasites? Dr. Gardner. That's uh, an excellent point. Um, we are seeing changes in diversity of parasitism and also of different mammals and birds as, as uh, distributions are changing due to global warming. The, uh, we're gonna probably see more uh, tropical disease types of parasites moving north into North America as our climate changes and we have increased warming. For instance, Chagas disease, which is found um, all through the tropical parts of of the uh, New World um, down in South America, Central America. And we also have it in North America and it's actually in the United States. Um, it is one that's uh, caused by trypanosome and the, the intermediate host for that, well, the, the transfer vector of that is called a Chagas uh, bug or a kissing bug. And those bugs um, take a blood meal and then the parasites um, multiply inside that bug. And then when the bug takes another blood meal, it defecates on the host. And then the host becomes infected if the uh, trypanosomes um, go into the um, mucous membranes of the eyes or the mouth, or they go into, the, into a wound on the skin. So that's one that's gonna be increasing. Um, normal parasite, well, parasites that don't occur in humans are also changing in distributions I'm not finding the tapeworms on our farm any longer. They've, they're, they've disappeared. It may be because the farming practices have changed or something else, but they're, they're nowhere to be found in the area where I first did the description. They mm -hmm. are other places in the, in the valley, in the Willamette Valley 
of Oregon, but I have not found them anymore on our farm, which is interesting in my, my opinion there. Yeah. We are talking about parasites and you're listening to Forum. I mean, a Kim. Um, Dr. Gardner, would you say that it's important to study parasites in part because we also do know that they have incredible abilities to evolve, especially in very changing environments. So of course you're talking about how they're disappearing, but just the benefit of doing that so that we can better understand and maybe derive our own benefits from studying how they do that, how they evolve. Exactly. That's a, as, as host populations, as mammal populations or bird populations are moving through space and time, um, they also have their parasites that are moving through space and time. And as we have, um, we know from doing detailed studies in certain areas that some parasites are able to what we call switch hosts uh, called ecological fitting in the uh, scientific way to speak about it. Um, and that is indicative of parasites that are switching into new host groups or new host species um, when the host species overlap. So what's happening in the tropics, for instance, is we're cutting the trees, going further into the rainforest, people are, are becoming more exposed to diff different kinds of, of pathogens and parasites that they hadn't been exposed to before. And that's an example of ecological fitting where humans are involved. And the same thing is happening with um, animals as they're moving through different ecological zones as we're making new edges for forests animals are contacting each other that they hadn't contacted before this it's really changing very very quickly and what i mean by quickly is you know evolution has been going on for many millions of years and as we're changing things in a 50 or 100 year period stuff is happening so fast that it's hard for us to keep track of well, Bonnie writes, my dogs hunt and are pretty good at killing pocket gophers. <laughs> I don't let them uh -huh. eat them, but I do let them give them a good shake. At what point could they contract the parasite? Or how would I know if they have a parasite? Should I still let them sleep with me? <laughs> um, pocket gophers are so cool. That's what it's one of my favorite mammals. Um, the gophers have their own parasites that are not going to transfer into um, humans or other other. Uh, animals, probably they're not going to get anything from the gopher that it eats. Um, the gophers have tapeworms that like the one that I described, they also have other species in California that are uh, one called um, Aerostrolepus um, is one that occurs there. There's different kinds of nematodes, but none of those will actually live in the dog if the dog eats it. Mm. Well, can your guest talk about Giardia? Again, another one with dogs. My dogs have been fighting it for weeks and reinfecting each other. That also is a fairly common one, right, Dr. Wu, especially among hikers? Sure. Um, it, it's present worldwide. Um, and typically you get it when you drink contaminated water, either you know surface waters, ponds, rivers here in the U.S., or uh, potentially in parts of the world where the water supply is undertreated. You can... Uh, um, you know, uh, get it through through water, drinking, you know, contaminated uh, tap water or contamination of the food. Yeah. Um, how would you like to see parasites reframed if they have a bad rep, Dr. Gardner? I ask because, of course, we get plenty of comments from our listeners right now about 
how they're grossed out or the show is giving them the creeps or they're pretty phobic about parasites and so on. What would be a way that you think is more accurate in terms of how we approach and think about parasites? Well, the way I think about it is that it's parasites are part of our biosphere. They're normal components of all of the wild animals that live around us. In our my backyard here, the, the rabbits, the little bunnies that live here, they have four or five different species of parasites that don't, uh, they will not jump into other, well, they won't go into our um, domestic animals. Um, they have their own specific things. Um, I like to frame them in the in the in the 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 overall picture of parasites being basically benign for the most part, unless we're talking, of course, about some of the tapeworms that uh, Dr. Wu mentioned. Um, but I really think that uh, just seeing that these things have their own groups of organisms that live on and with them kind of gives. What gives a, uh, what would you call it, a, um, a positive aspect of parasitism. One of the things that I notice also is that if we're studying mammals through space and time, if we find parasites that are, uh, if we find a host group that's very, very uh, limited in parasitism, that means there might be something wrong there, mm. like a decreased ecological structure. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So they're indicative so, of a lot of things that are important for us to know and could be benefiting us. Scott Gardner, thank you so much for talking with us. Certainly. Parasitologist at the University of Nebraska. Check out the book if you want to learn a heck of a lot about the biology of parasites. It's called Parasites, the Inside Story. Dr. Wu, thank you as well. You're welcome. Dr. Wu of Emory University School of Medicine and Infectious Diseases there. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Thank you for listening to it, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. 
Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.